0: BLOB TALK RADIO i oh, sorry for that, I thought I had played the song Go Fish, uh, looks like I had um, a mutant still uh, sorry about that, and um, welcome to Truth We Told Radio, and let's see, I'm going to play the lesson, get right into it, since I missed it before, <laughs> sorry about that. Uh, this is, let's see, it's John Carter with Saving Grace Part 1 here on Truth We Told Radio.
1: The following sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace To You. If you've never contacted Grace To You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found, God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's peace, P-E-A-C-E, at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through December 2017. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time, here's grace to you Bible teacher John MacArthur.
2: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Titus chapter 2 again. We have been dealing for a number of weeks in the very practical instruction of this great chapter And today we come to the doctrinal foundation on which all of that practical truth is built. Verses 11 through 14 of Titus chapter 2. As we approach this text, just a few opening comments. One of the familiar terms that we hear in our society is the term star, and it usually isn't used to refer to some celestial body, but rather to refer to some individual somebody in the movies or somebody on television or somebody in sports, somebody in the music field. All of these people uh, are labeled stars when they reach a certain preeminence, when they shine brightly in their given field, when the world knows about them and they sort of outstrip the others around them. Annually, books and magazines and television programs and documentaries select these brightest stars in every field and we watch a steady parade of them across the television as various and sundry award ceremonies take place and they receive the achieved award for their stardom. These are the world's stars and in the most cases they are fallen stars. I mean fallen in the sense that they're not believers They aren't the real stars in our world, at least not by God's definition. Listen to what it says in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. And those who have insight or wisdom will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever What the Holy Spirit is saying in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, is this. Those who have divine wisdom, doctrine, those whose divine wisdom allows them to see through the sinfulness of their own wicked generation to follow the path of God's righteousness. And then those who lead others to righteousness are the true stars. Those who know doctrine, they have insight and wisdom. Those who live out that doctrine in an obedient life and who thus lead others to righteousness are the true stars. And they will shine not for a brief moment in the world, but forever and ever. That's a great promise. That's a promise that relates not to the temporal issues of life, but to the eternal. A promise that one who knows the truth, who lives the truth, and by the knowing and the living of the truth leads others to the truth, will in eternity have a full capacity to radiate the glory of God in heaven forever and ever. As I said, the stars of earth are fallen stars. The stars in heaven will be unfallen and exalted. In Luke chapter 1... And verse 15, it says of John the Baptist, He will be great in the sight of the Lord. The question comes why, verse 16, He will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go as a forerunner before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He will be great. He will be a star because he turns many to righteousness. In the end of the book of James, the very last verse, It says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Anyone who is instrumental in leading someone else to righteousness is a star by God's definition. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, there's an interesting statement that I want to tie in with this. It says in verse 15 of Philippians 2, That we are lights in the world. We are lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are lights if we are blameless and innocent children of God, holding fast the word of life. So if you live innocently and godly as the children of God... If you live out your life faithfully before the Lord and you hold fast to the word of life, you are a light in the world. And lights now become stars later. Who will be the stars in the glory of eternal heaven? Who will shine the brightest in eternity? People like you. People who follow the instruction of Titus chapter 2. Older men, verse 2, who are temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith in love and perseverance. Older women, likewise, who are reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Younger women who love their husbands, love their children, are sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Young men, who are sensible, who are characterized by good deeds, purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach. And bond slaves, who are subject to their own masters in everything, who are well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Those are the stars. Now, the amazing thing about it is that that's not really a list of achievements, is it? It's all a definition of character. It's people who know truth, who live truth, who therefore lead others to truth that will shine as the stars forever and ever. People like you, like you older men, like you older women, like you younger women, like you younger men. People like you who work for someone, who are employees, who live godly lives And because of what you know and what you live, others come to know Christ. Those of you who, not because of some achievement, not because of your intellect, not because of your artistic ability, not because of your creativity, not because of your intellectual prowess, not because of your athletic ability, those of you, rather, who live godly lives, you become the stars. Why? Verse 5 says, because you make sure that you live so that the Word of God is not dishonored. Verse 8, so that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The end of verse 10, so that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. When you live a life that exalts the Word and silences the critics and lifts up the glories of a saving God, you will lead others to Christ. Now the theme that I want to Press home, and we've been doing it all through the series, is that God is a saving God. And the major message that he wants to communicate to the world is that he can save. And the way that he communicates that is to demonstrate it through saved people. And if saved people don't act like saved people, then God is not getting his message across. We're hindering it. The aspect of God's nature as Savior is the major emphasis on Him in this letter. Back to chapter 1, verse 3. The verse ends God our Savior. Verse 4, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 10, God our Savior. Verse 13, our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 4, God our Savior. Chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus Christ our Savior. Every time there's reference made to God and Christ in this letter, it is to God and Christ as Savior, with the exception of the introduction of God in the first two verses. In other words, if God is going to demonstrate his saving power, he's going to have to demonstrate it through saved people. They become the evidence that he can save. Save means deliver men from sin. As I said last week, turn sinners into saints. So our Lord here is always depicted in saving terms. That's central. After all, didn't Jesus say the Son of Man has come to seek and to what? Save that which was lost. Those who are faithful instruments demonstrating His saving power by their transformed lives will be the stars of heaven. They are lights now. They are stars later. All the commands and all the demands and all the exhortations to holy living in the New Testament and in this chapter have as their purpose to reach the lost with convincing evidence that God can and does save. The key to such evidence is transformed lives. Now, obviously, we have to speak the truth. You can't be saved without hearing the truth about Christ. But getting someone to listen to it is dependent upon the demonstration of its power they have seen in the lives of others. So God saved us to make us holy so that others could see the transformed lives that God has produced and come to Him for the same transformation. That is precisely the point of the text before us. With that in mind, let's read beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared... "...bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous... For good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The key phrase that I want you to focus on in that text is the end of verse 14, the last phrase, zealous for good deeds. That's the culmination. The grace of God appeared. Salvation came to all men. With it came instruction on how to live. With it came a blessed hope waiting for the coming of Christ. And then he recapitulates that Christ gave himself that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, that he might purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it comes, zealous for good deeds. Why? Because it is that passion for goodness that demonstrates the transformed life. Go down into chapter 3 for a moment and notice verse 8. This is a trustworthy statement and concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed in God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Why? Because these things are good and spiritually profitable for men. They lead men to conclude that God saves. The Lord saved us then with a view toward creating in us a zeal for good works, a passion about doing what is right for the sake of its impact on those around us. We were saved to become stars. We are to let our light so shine before men that they may glorify God. And someday that light will become a shining star in the heaven of heavens. All the components of salvation were designed to display God as a saving God. And the whole point of salvation is to deliver us from what? Sin. From sin. Sin that cripples and debilitates and crushes human life. Sin that hangs on as an un cured plague, but saving grace comes along and is designed to deliver us from sin so that the saving power of God may be made manifest. Now, as we look at these verses, and we'll not be able to complete them, there's too much richness here, but as we look at them, there are four features of the work of saving grace with regard to sin. There are four elements, four aspects. Four components. When saving grace comes and does its transforming work in order that we might move from being sinners to saints and display God's saving power, there are four ways in which saving grace overpowers sin. Four of them. And they're very commonly expressed, and you will have heard them before, at least three of the four, but I want you to see them in the light of this great text. First of all, when saving grace comes, It is designed to deliver us from the penalty of sin, from the penalty of sin. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, this simple, direct statement is saying that saving grace rescues sinners from the inevitable vengeance, judgment, and wrath of God. The word salvation means deliverance or rescue. When you use the term rescue, you're you're obviously talking about saving someone from a very serious fate, usually death. In this case, obviously, death spiritually, death physically, and death eternally. Death at the hands of God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, as Jesus said. So the grace of God appears to rescue all men. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Jesus said you will die in your sins and where I go you can never come. Scripture talks about hell. It talks about a place of burning, of unceasing, unrelenting fire, the fire never being quenched, a place where the consuming worms, the maggots, never die, neither does the weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth ever cease. The horrors of that place are also defined as outer darkness, and it is forever. Saving grace comes for the purpose of salvation. That's to rescue sinners out of hell, to deliver them from the curse of God, the inevitable curse of God that ends up as eternal judgment. Now, let's look more closely at this statement. The word for ties it into verses 1 to 10. It's a little transition. He's saying, this is how you're to live, this is how you're to live, this is how you're to behave yourselves so that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior for or because And then he goes on to describe the foundation for all Christian conduct. And the foundation for all Christian conduct is that God has saved you to be zealous for good deeds so that you could be used to lead others to Him. All the required transformed living of verses 1 through 10 is produced by the saving work described in verses 11 through 14. God saves to transform To display his power that others may be saved. If Christians, as some teach, could lose their salvation, then God wouldn't be making much of a statement about his power to save, would he? That's why I I don't believe that those who teach you can lose your salvation have a biblical theology. What does that do to God? Who is going to want to believe in a God who can save temporarily or momentarily until you mess up? But if Christians couldn't be lost, but could lose their faith and reject God and reject Christ and deny His Lordship and still be saved we would still not be impressed, would we, with God's saving power. In the first scenario, we would say, well, he can save, but he can't keep. In the second, we would say, he can save and he can keep, but he can't transform. Any of those fall short of a biblical comprehension of what God does. He saves, he keeps, he transforms. Anything less than that, and the whole evangelistic strategy crumbles. We talk a lot about the issue of lordship, and it is not only bound up in the issue of personal salvation, it is bound up in the issue of world evangelization. For if God can save someone but not change him, then what is the substance of evidence that God can save at all? If a person is saved, but you'd never know it, what's the point? God saves in order to transform, in order to make evident his power. And if his power can't keep and his power can't keep and transform, then he can't make his point. And I wouldn't want to assume, neither would you, that God couldn't make his point, would you? So Paul looks at salvation from the penalty of sin, and he starts with the grace of God. Go back to verse 11. This is so rich. For the grace of God has appeared. Every aspect of salvation is predicated on grace. Whether you're talking about election in eternity past or whether you're talking about glorification in eternity, future, or everything else in between, justification, regeneration, conversion, redemption, sanctification, it is all of grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, very familiar words, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, it meaning the whole package. Everything from election through faith to glorification is the gift of God not of works, lest any man should boast. It is all by grace that you are saved. Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. The only contribution we make is our sinfulness. God's grace and grace alone is what saves. So the grace of God comes. Now what is grace? Well, you know the definition of it. I repeat it just to jog your memory. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward wicked, unworthy sinners by which He delivers them from sin and its penalty. It is God's unmerited favor toward wicked, unworthy sinners by which He delivers them from sin and its penalty. God's free, completely unmerited goodness by which He blesses sinners eternally. But as we look at this phrase, I want you to look at it, Paul is not just intending us to understand grace here as a word to be defined or as an attribute of God, but he personifies it into a person. Notice this. For the grace of God has what? Appeared. The grace of God has appeared. Epiphane. Has become visible has come into the light, has broken forth. The word actually means to appear suddenly and visibly. Who is the fulfillment of that? The Lord Jesus Christ. When he says the grace of God has appeared, he's talking about the incarnation. The grace of God appeared suddenly, visibly, in the world when Jesus arrived. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the personification of the grace of God. In Second Timothy, chapter 1 and verse 10, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death. What has been revealed? Back to verse 9. The grace which was granted us, From all eternity, God's eternal electing grace appeared in Christ. Titus chapter 3 verse 4, look at that verse for a moment. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. That's a marvelous statement. Now look at this. He doesn't say when Jesus Christ appeared. He says when the kindness of God appeared, when His love for man appeared, He saved us. Who is the incarnate kindness of God? Who is the incarnate love of God? Who is the incarnate grace of God? None other than Jesus Christ designated as He, in verse 5, the one who saved us. Grace shines in the face of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. And what kind of glory was it? It was glory full of grace. We looked at Him and we saw grace. And verse 16, and we received from Him grace upon grace, grace upon grace. He is grace incarnate. And so he's talking about the incarnation, the Savior, the one who came. Bethlehem was where grace was incarnated, where kindness was incarnated, where the love of God was incarnated in the form of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about a historical event When grace appeared, the history of salvation reached its central point. His appearing started his work, which redeemed all who have ever been redeemed. Eric Sauer, the great German theologian, wrote, Of all times, it is the turning point. Of all love, it is the highest point. Of all worship, it is the central point. And of all salvation, it is the starting point. Grace came. Why did he come? He came, very clearly it tells you, bringing salvation. That's why he came. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Actually, that phrase bringing salvation is one word in the Greek, saving. For the grace of God has appeared savingly. We might make it even adverbial. Or salvation bringing. The effect of His appearance was to bring redemption. Spiritual deliverance. He came to save. And of course, this is such a repeated truth in the New Testament. I don't want to pound the issue, but at the same time, I don't want to miss it. Now, you remember... So many wonderful statements. One of them in Luke 2, he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. That was spoken by a man named Simeon. He picked up the baby in the temple and looked in His face and said, I see salvation. I see salvation. That is the reason He came. Nothing beyond that. Nothing less than that. Grace then came to save sinners. Now please notice one other phrase. Very, very important. If we can get through this, we'll do well. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men. The point is initially that, that incarnate grace, follow the thought, was literally laden with salvation. He didn't come sparingly, he, he was loaded with it for all men. 1 Timothy 2, we need to understand this phrase. 1 Timothy 2 helps us. 1 Timothy 2, verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. There's that same title used so often in the pastorals. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He desires all men to be saved. Paul says there's one God, there's one mediator, and he gave himself a ransom for all. All. And I'm, I'm appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the nations. And, and I want men in every place to pray for their salvation. That's the breadth, the magnanimity of this issue. He came to save, and he desires that all men be saved. And Paul says, I preach then to all, and I want you to pray for all. It could be translated for all men rather than to all men. Now, would you notice if you have a King James Version that your Bible says has appeared to all men rather than the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all men, it says the grace of God has appeared to all men. That's not a good translation, and we know that the grace of God bringing salvation has not appeared to all men. That is to say, it still hasn't. There are many people in the world who don't know about saving grace, And there are many people who will never know about it. Many have died not knowing about it. And I prefer the New American Standard order. I think it is accurate that what the Greek is intending to say is the grace of God has appeared. That's a historical event. That happened in Bethlehem. And the reason for that appearing was in order to bring salvation for all men. In John chapter 3... And verse 16, that very familiar verse, listen to it in these terms. For God so loved, what? The world that He gave His only begotten Son. The extent then of the gift was to match the extent of the love, and the extent of the love was the world. The appearing of the grace of God incarnate, bringing salvation, was intended For the full scope of God's love to offer salvation to the world. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repent in 2 Peter 3, 9. God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all men. God so loved the world, though not all will be saved. The gospel, then, is good news to all men. Because when God calls upon men universally to believe, he does not call upon them to believe that they are elected or that Christ died for them in particular. He calls upon them to believe that Christ died for sin, for sinners, for the world. The atonement is not offered to an individual either as an elect man or as a non-elect man, but as a man and a sinner simply. So says Dr. Shedd. God calls all men to faith. He calls all men everywhere to repent, Scripture says. He calls on all men everywhere to appropriate the salvation that grace has brought. And if they don't, they're condemned. It is not the extent of the atonement that condemns them. It is the absence of faith. In John chapter 5... It is important for us to hear the words of Jesus, verses 38 to 40. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Your problem is, you don't believe. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. The issue is not the extent of atonement. The issue is faith. In John 6, verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. The crowd says, What do we do to do the works of God? And he says, Believe. Believe. When the Holy Spirit does His work in the hearts of unregenerate men, His work that is known as conviction, it says in John chapter 16 that the Holy Spirit will come, verse 8, And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen to this. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. That is always the issue. That is always the issue. God has revealed his grace for the salvation of all men. God has revealed his grace for the salvation of all, so that he can collect a faithful witnessing people who demonstrate saving power in their lives and show God to be a saving God that others may be drawn to him. Now I want to footnote what I've just said to acknowledge an ongoing debate, and I I hear about it all the time and People discuss it with me even here at Grace Church frequently. And that's the debate between whether Christ died for the whole world or whether He died for just the elect. Is the atonement limited or is it not limited? Do we believe in a universal atonement or a particular one? This is not easy to deal with, and you can pile up people on both sides of the issue, but let me tell you what I believe Scripture says. It's a difficult issue to understand. The way to understand it simply stating is, stated is this, the atonement is sufficient for the world, but efficient only to those who believe. It makes provision that is great enough to embrace the world The atoning work of Jesus Christ is unlimited in what it accomplished because He is the unlimited God who was the unlimited and perfect offering. But it can only be applied to those who believe and therefore by believing demonstrate that they are the chosen of God. People are saved because they believe and lost because they don't believe. The extent of the atonement is not the issue. The other side of this divine paradox, which God fully understands, is that the atonement is limited in its efficacy. For example, at his birth, the angel proclaimed that Christ's name would be Jesus and that he would save his people from their sins, the elect. In agreement with that, we find Jesus Christ stating that he had come to save all those whom the Father had given him. We are told in the scriptures that Christ died for the many, he died for his people, in John 11:52 he died for the children of God, in John 6 and John 17 he died for those given him by the Father, in Ephesians 5:25 he died for the church, in Hebrews 2:10 for the many sons, in Hebrews 2:11-12 and 17 he died for his brethren, in Hebrews 2:13 and 14 for the children, in Hebrews 2:16 for the seed of Abraham and in Hebrews 2:17 for the people of God. Uh, Folks read that and they say, well, it seems to me that that limits the atonement. I don't understand that. I don't understand how it harmonizes. But that's not my problem. All I'm supposed to do is preach the gospel to every creation, every creature, every human. How he fits that into his sovereignty, his elective purpose, and the limits that he established for for the efficiency of the atonement is his problem, not mine. So, saving grace appeared in the incarnation to rescue us from wrath, judgment, hell. And God designed that for the world. And Paul's point to Titus is, look, If we're going to win this world, we've got to show them what rescued people look like, right? That's one out of three points. Let's pray. Father, what a tremendous statement is in this one verse. Just overwhelms us. And we pray that somehow what's been in my heart and my mind and what I've longed to be able to convey and struggle to to clarify in my own mind over the last few days has come across clearly. These are not easy things, and I can only pray that there would be a settling in all of our minds of the truth. Lord, we want to be the saved people we. We want to be the people who look like and live like we've been rescued from eternal judgment. Saved from the penalty, and as we shall see from the power, from the presence, and from the possession of sin. We we want to be the transformed folks who live godly lives so that the word of God is not dishonored, the, the critics are silenced, and you, God, our Savior, are displayed as a saving, powerful, mighty God. So make us zealous for good works, for this indeed is profitable for men who see us and will conclude that our God indeed can save. And we want to honor you in that way, for Christ's sake. Amen.
1: You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible Teacher with Grace To You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace To You's website, gty.org and for details about the masters university where john serves as president go to masters.edu john MacArthur and grace to you reserve all copyright protection under applicable law our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file
3: See.
0: Uh, are we in last days should we confront false teachers here on Trippetorio?
4: This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Sunday school sale. That doesn't sound right, really, does it? This is Wretched Radio. (laughs) We're
3: (laughs) selling Sunday school? Just the
4: stuff that goes with it at WretchedRadio.com. Having a sale on Sunday school curriculum. Encourage you to check it out. It is visually compelling it is theologically sound and it will take your class deeper i might put a little spotlight on Jesus unmasked the book and the study guide it is really really good don't be intimidated it's a it's a 20 week course but you can do it 2 weeks if you want to 4 weeks pick, pick your favorite number and it can be that long or you can do up to 20 weeks it has a teacher's guide it has a student guide and it will Guide your class through the Old Testament as you find Jesus there and get encouraged. The Bible is about one subject and one subject only. Jesus. That is the number of the Old Toll Free. If you have a question, comment, conundrum, or snark, remember... Try as best you can to keep it pithy. Joey appreciates that. And if you happen to be a pagan, ixnay on the airing sway. Otherwise, call 1-877-282-PEEP.
0: i am in a maze with
3: myself, and I talk to a lot of people about Jesus. Good on you. One question I get asked a lot is, uh, who created God? And, of course, I would say, well, God is always has and always will be, and that's about the extent that I know. I'm wondering what your thoughts were on
4: well, that. Uh, but actually, that's enough to know. God is the always existing one. Now, you can, if you want to, get more into the apologetics of it, that God is the unmoved mover, that if there is something, there has to be something that always existed because nothing doesn't make anything. So inevitably, you have got some form of eternal regress. The pagan has the same Perceive that we have. Where did this stuff? When did it start? How did it start? Where did it begin? When did that happen? Well, um, we think about where, where are we these days? Six billion years ago. Okay, so then what was there before that? Nothing. There always had to be something, and so the something happens to be God. Here is where people get tripped up on this. Trying to help people understand it. I don't think it's comprehensible. I can, if you gave me a test on it, give me the verses that describe that God is eternal. can do that. Explain that. Got it. Tell me what, what that, how that actually happens or, or, or the, or the, the, the meaning by, I have no idea. I can't comprehend it because we can't. And that reminds us that God actually does exist. Not that he doesn't exist because we can't get that. I always can. I think that I can do a decent job because of the way time works. I can imagine infinity in the future. I think I've got that. I kind of see it almost like a ribbon, just just flowing, and it's just you never get to the end of it. It just always just keeps going. It's the backwards part. You mean the ribbon doesn't have a beginning? I can't get that. Nobody can. So don't don't trip over trying to help somebody comprehend it. Some things, and and this sounds like this sounds like a cop out, but it is not. There are, there must be some things that we accept by faith. There must be, otherwise God would not be real. If there isn't something about God that is incomprehensible, then He's not, and we are. There's the Trinity is one of them. This whole, and it's such a battle. This does God elect? Yes. Do we genuinely respond? Yes. Go ahead and get that. There are just things that are difficult to get. And the eternality of God is one of those things. So don't, and if people look at you like, well, I'm not getting that. Don't think you failed in in the explanation. Just recognize it's just a very difficult thing to get a hold of. Keep up the good work, young man.
3: Why is it that when Christians want to talk about money, they say that Jesus spoke about money more than any other subject? And when Christians want to talk about hell, they say that Jesus spoke about hell more than any other subject.
4: Maybe you could confirm the age-old question. Did Jesus talk about money or hell more? Um you know, I've, I've never done a study on that comparison, and I would say that Jesus, he talked about money a little bit. I, I He maybe used money in parables. I would say what Jesus talked about most was salvation. <laughs> it's what he talked about, the, his mission. He was talking about the gospel, hands down, more than anything else, pointing to himself as the Messiah. I'm thinking, for instance, right now of the book of Luke, half the book dedicated to talking about what true saving faith is, okay. In the middle of that, he met a rich young ruler, but it wasn't a dialogue or a diatribe Ooh. about money by any means, there was a verse about it, and that wasn't a financial conversation. It was an idolatry issue. So I I don't know if he talked about money more or hell more. I I would have to say probably hell more than money, if I had to, because I just think about Matthew twenty five, just the the lengthy discourse on that probably would wipe out any money although wait a second going back okay if you want to talk money you could go back to the sermon on the mount and talking about why do you worry about this stuff where your where your treasure is where your heart is that's where your treasure is Uh, but hands down i think the far more important issue is he talked about the gospel being made right with god pointing to himself as the savior I just finished reading the Gospel of Mark a couple nights ago, and it's just one miracle after another, immediately. Read through the Gospel of Mark. It's 16 chapters long. They're fun chapters to read because they just move at a blistering pace. That was the point. Jesus was a very busy Savior, and he went immediately, and immediately, and then immediately this happened. It's demigrable. He was he was on the move he was going he was working hard doing what healing people why to authenticate the message of the messenger now having said all of that this is just an aside as I was reading the gospel of mark there were several times when it, it talked more about his miracles he went to the region of galilee and taught to them and then it describes a miracle to demonstrate that his message was to be believed but Mark didn't spend a whole lot of time on the message. And I just thought, oh, wow. We get we get like a thimble full of the teachings of Jesus. Make no mistake about it. It's everything we need to know for life and godliness. Furthermore, there were times Jesus undoubtedly repeated the same message because he was an itinerant minister, and he didn't want to have, not that he couldn't do it, but he didn't want to make up new stuff all the time. Why? Because he wanted people to hear the essential, important, salvific stuff. Nevertheless, I think we still have just a little bit of his teaching. Imagine the conversations. What what would you give to hear those? Wouldn't that be? Ah. And so I imagine someday in heaven, we will, as we have eternity to spend together, and we get to hang out with the disciples. We can talk to them and ask them questions about that. And what when when he was when he dealt with. That 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 demoniac. What else? what was he saying when that happened? Because you know, and even in his longer, even the Sermon on the Mount, it's still an edited version for us. Tell us some of the other things that he said. Tell me, that would not be a gas.
3: Are we living in a time of Noah? Do you think it's the beginning of the last days
4: uh, The is is it the last days? Yes is at the beginning of the last days, I don't know. Why? Because I don't know when Jesus is coming back. If he tarries for a million years, yes, we're in the beginning of the last days. If he comes back next week, which I think is somebody's prediction, I'm not sure, but you could probably Google it, then I I would say that, no, we're not at the beginning of the last days. Remember, too, please, the signs of the times. They are not... To determine when Jesus is coming back, the signs of the times are to remind us that he is coming back. How
3: do we do a better job with the word-faith movement and word-faith people when they bring the argument through Scripture? Sure. When it talks clearly that what we ask in Jesus' name, he will grant us.
4: Sure. Yeah, it it, it requires explanation. This is my suggestion because every, every scenario is a bit organic. Getting into a wrangle over individual Bible verses, if they just want to fight over Bible verses, I think you're banging your head against a word-faith wall. I suggest, rather than diving into those verses to tear down their prosperity theology, because that, that's where the tension exists, Start teaching them, if you can, if you have the ability to get together in that type of environment, teach them deeper theology, take them deeper in the word, introduce them to better preachers so that they can start hearing a difference between an expository sermon and some goofy, made-up, entertainment-style word-faith sermon so that God persuades them through his word. Then as they mature and grow, they're going to start taking a look at those, those verses and go, wait a second, I know, wait a second, he wasn't promising absolutely everything. Praying in Jesus' name means I need to be in alignment with his word, and that doesn't mean a promise to be rich. So let God mature them through the teaching of his word. This is Wretched Radio.
1: Thanks for listening to the Wretched Segment Du Jour if you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at wretched.tv/listen, or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost, equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church.
0: Like I said, that was from Wretched. That's from I got that from the their YouTube page uh, channel, but you could also uh, listen to their show at wretched dot T V W R E T C H E D T V. And they have a TV show there too. And but you have to um to watch that you have to join and um and you got the current prices on there. Go to your website. Wretched dot TV. But um, their radio show, it streams daily It has a free a section where you can listen to it free uh, daily And so check out their website for that And you are seeing me, Melissa Cantola, here on Truth Be Told Radio Our website is truthbetoldradio.com Truthbetoldradio.com Check us out there And if you want to See my testimony, you should go to smilesandstuff.com, smilesandstuff.com. And here we go with answers and just
5: Choosing our gender? This is Ken Ham, author, speaker, and blogger on why we can trust the Bible. There's lots of confusion about gender in our culture right now. We're constantly told that anyone can be whatever he or she wants to be, and that gender is a spectrum rather than two distinctions. In the midst of all this confusion, thankfully we can look to God's word for solid answers. In Genesis we read, God created male and female. Jesus affirmed this in the New Testament when he was asked about marriage. He quoted Genesis and said, God created them male and female. Gender isn't a spectrum or a social construct. We're distinctly male and female because God designed us that way from the beginning. We can't decide what we want to be. We need to look to God's Word.
6: Learn more about what God's Word says about gender, marriage, and many other hot-button social issues at AnswersRadio.com. You'll be encouraged when you go to AnswersRadio.com.
3: I'm breaking news out of Haiti, the largest but powerful earthquake in the region's history. The federal judge's ruling is allowed to stand. This year's National Day of Prayer could likely be the country's last. I will be done. I'm blessed. I still need heaven. The number of hundred people worldwide has reached one billion for the first time since 1970. So let's just a daily bread. And what our trespasses. A few moments ago, something crashed into the south tower of the World Trade Center. But the was from evil is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me. Love am
0: And this is my father world and if you want to find out more about Go Fish go to GoFishGuys.com G-O-F-I-S-H G-U-I-S dot C-M GoFishGuys.com and you us Trip B, Trip Radio. check us out at TruthBeTollRadio.com TruthBeTollRadio.com and let's see, what I'm going to do next is play Answers in Genesis
5: The Clarity of Scripture this is ken ham president of the ministry that built a full-size noah's ark near cincinnati in recent years we've discovered thousands of artifacts and documents that date back to biblical times Do these have value in interpreting the Bible? Well, this week we'll look at ways we can use ancient artifacts to clarify biblical passages. But we need to remember something as we consider this question. The Bible tells us all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. Even though Scripture was written by, and often to, specific people during a time in history, the ultimate author is God. He made sure His Word was clear for all people, for all time. While ancient artifacts are informative, we really don't need them to interpret Scripture.
6: Go to AnswersRadio.com to learn more about God's Word and how we can know it's true. Sign up for daily email insights from Ken Ham when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. And now I'm going
0: to play from Wretches to Justin your Pastor isn't much of a pastor here know, Trippy Toll you. Told
4: this is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. <laughs> it's unbelievable. This is Wretched Radio. What is it with earphones? Seriously. This is the 21st century. When's somebody going to invent dango free earphones? You put them down, and you turn your back on them, and they just tie themselves in knots. How does that... You put your earphones... Just your little, wherever you store them, you come back to get them, and you say, I don't remember tying them up like this. It's the prince and the power of the earbuds, I think, at work. Having a little wrestling match here. This is Wretched Radio. Joey, why did you ask me about the Minnehaha high school business? Oh, I was just wondering if you'd heard about it. Oh, yeah, it was on on the local news. It was a national story, I think. Now, how many people died in that explosion at that very, very... uh, it's not a cheap private school, Mini Haha Academy. Two. Okay. I thought yeah. I had heard originally it was more, but two people died. So,
1: uh yeah, two people died and then I think nine went to the hospital. Yeah.
4: And it, and if it had been in school last night. Let me tell you something. That would have yeah. been awful. At any moment, things like that can happen can't they? And they do. Minnehaha Academy. It's in St. Paul, Minnesota. If I'm not mistaken, I think I taught tennis there for a while. I could be wrong. Stop laughing. What? Guy had to make a living, you if know. video.
1: Please tell me there's video. <laughs>
4: no, sir. He's <laughs> just coaching the team, I think. I can't remember. It's It's kind of been a while. Please make sure that you prepare your children for tragedies because, got to tell you, they can strike. My daughter has a friend driving down Highway 85 here in Atlanta, and, and the, the girl behind her was texting. Rrr, hit her. She then slammed into the car in front of her. Airbag didn't deploy. Thanks for that, Nissan. And now she's walking around in a neck brace. Was she planning on that? No, but we should plan on that because bad things happen. They just do. And and, and when we don't prepare our kids and ourselves for those things, it just makes it harder. Let me just see. Hold on one second here. All <laughs> that. Where did that go? Well, I used to have a stack here. Of all of the, I just I continue to pull out all of the grace gems that talk about of being ready for disaster, making sure that your heart recognizes God is sovereign and in control of everything. It's much better to do it in advance than after the fact. Speaking of that, it seems to me that I I talk about that a bit in a book called Stressed Out, available at wretchedradio.com. It helps you. There's one chapter. Jesus gives this as an anxiety reliever. That God is sovereign over everything. That means that God will use sin sinlessly for your good if you are in him. Repeat after me. Even bad things are for my good because God loves me. And he desires bigger things for me, so that I can grow in holiness. Sort of like Justin Bieber has been growing in holiness. All right. Eh? Just one quick note on the beepster. It seems to me it was a week ago. Tony, you scoured the Internet for the news du jour, which is also the news of the day. And there was a oh, there was a, a rumor going around that Justin Bieber was canceling his tour. I don't know if that's true yeah. or not. But Apparently the rumor was. The rest of his tour. Yeah. Oh so the rumor did he ever give an explanation for that you read the rumor correct
1: Yeah actually he sent out a thing of a big on uh, a dilly-bop. Yeah Uh
4: hang on it Oh he actually explained something. why because the rumor he was something he was going to start a church Oh boy hey,
3: don't that
4: was that's it uh thrilling thought. Let me so, just look quick. Yeah, you look, and in the meantime, a week goes by, and he's in New Zealand, I think. Australia, New Zealand, they're pretty much the same. <clears throat> Hi. Hi, everybody from Australia, New Zealand. Justin Bieber was at a bar doing shots, basically stripping and then dancing with a, an elderly woman who was in the bar It was kind of interesting that the caption, a bunch of people sent this to idea at wretchedradio.com. The caption that caught my attention was, Justin Bieber redeems himself. What? So then it explains that Justin Bieber, for all the bad stuff that he does, he balances it out with a good thing. What was the good thing? He was doing shots, stripping, and then dancing with an old woman. I guess some go. people's perception of a good thing happens to be different than mine. So why why is this a story worth reporting? Well, in and of itself, it's not, frankly. I don't expect anything from Justin Bieber, the least of which would be catchy music. It was his company, the person that was doing shots with him. It was one Carl Lentz heard the name. He's a super groovy Hillsong, faster. That's right. Doing shots with his protege, the Beepster. He's supposed to be discipling Justin. He's doing shots with him and letting him behave like a hooligan or something. Why? Because this is the mindset. This is the thinking. There's more to it than this. But here's the thinking of Carl Lentz. Okay, so I probably shouldn't be doing shots in a bar. You probably shouldn't be doing shots, period. Okay? But you're supposed to be leading. But the idea is I lead through cool. Hey, I don't always want to be a fuddy dud. I'm going to show Justin. See, Christians can be in the world and of the world. And that is the modus operandi. That's the thinking behind I would suggest to you most pastors, not all, but I'll bet at least 80%, possibly 90% of the pastors. This is, this is why we become so casual as clergy, whether it's title, whether it's appearance, whether it's the things in which we participate. Recently, I did a little bit of a, well, I guess you could call it a tirade, about grown men who act like boys, that this ought not to be. And some people said a little confused about what you're saying. Are you saying that a Christian man can never laugh? No. Are you saying a Christian man can never make jokes? No. Are you saying that a Christian man can never play? Play what? Well, sports, athletics. No, not saying that. Are you saying that a man shouldn't play games like fill-in-the-blank with a kid's game? Play-Doh? You'd say, well, that's not for a grown man. Go-karts? Huh? What about these silly games we see in churches that the grown men participate in that involve whipped cream and all kinds of nonsense and 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 rolling around in the mud? No, a grown man shouldn't be doing that. But the kids, they won't think that we're cool. Exactly. First of all, you're not. Second of all, Christianity is not about growing up to be cool. It's growing up to be godly, to be dignified, and that does not just for pastors. Do you remember Paul, Bun- Paul Bunyan? Do you remember John? See, it was the Minnehaha story that got me confused and thinking about Minnesota. John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. The first thing. Wait, 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 wait! That, wait. I gotta, I yeah. gotta ask. Yeah. What? You got to. to Bunyan
1: from a Minnesota. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you didn't. Yeah, I did. Well, actually, Paul I just, Bunyan.
4: I just got there by way of excuse for having oh, a good. speech error. I you were
1: going to try to tie in, speaking of speech error. That would be embarrassing.
4: Now, okay, uh, we'll wait here. now that's right. Bill Johnson was telling me about Spoonerism. Got it right here. There was a guy named Spooner. I think he was a president of a university, Reverend William Archibald Spooner, new, new college in Oxford, turn of the 20th century. He would turn his words around so once when he was performing a wedding, Reverend Spooner told the bridegroom, It is customary to cuss the bride. So close. On another occasion, he was preaching on Psalm 23. He assured his congregation that our Lord is a shoving leopard. That's a spoonerism, and apparently he did it a lot. I just do it on occasion. John no, Bunyan stuck with shoving left showed left. a picture of a man that should be a model for the pastor that all of us should seek to sit under. He was a man with a serious look because he had a serious assignment. He had the best of words on his lips, the laws of God. His eyes were heavenward. He was not a Mary Andrew. mature dignified not silly so you can have fun sir but i don't think the bible wants us to be silly boys for the sake of trying to show the kids see we can have fun too. do it in a godly christian mature dignified way all right why did justin say that he was going to stop his tour tony he just needed time off not to start a church just needed a break no He just—he needs a break. I'm not kidding you. It is exhausting to work for like 70 minutes a day, twice a week. Anyway, watch.
1: Apparently, got mobbed. I was coming out of a church service, and well, that's what church
4: is is for, right there. Mob celebrities. Carl, (laughs) be dignified. Be mature, pastors. Let us be dignified. Let us be mature, fellas, ladies. It's an admonition for all of us to be mature and dignified and not behaving like Justin Bieber or Carl Lenz. I never thought I'd have to say that sentence. This is Wretched Radio. Thanks
1: for listening to the Wretched segment du jour. If you'd like more Wretched, you can listen to the most current stream for free at slash listen, or you can become a club member and listen to our entire archive. Wretched, reaching the lost equipping the saints, and strengthening the local church.
5: The Bible is the authority. This is Ken Ham, often a guest on radio and TV on the Bible's authority and reliability. Can ancient documents and artifacts shed light on the Bible? Well, yes they can. But we need to be careful when we use ancient documents to help us interpret the Bible. We have to remember that Scripture is the ultimate authority for theology, history and more. It's the Bible that is a special revelation from the eyewitness creator. So if something in an ancient document contradicts the Bible, we know that it, not the Bible, must be wrong. We can use the Bible to clarify our understanding of outside sources. We cannot allow sources outside the Bible to be authorities over God's Word. These sources were written by fallible men. The Bible, though, was written with God as the ultimate author.
6: Want to know more about the Bible and how we should understand it? Plus, to learn more about our full-size Noah's Ark, visit our website, answersradio.com. That's answersradio.com.
5: Bible is different. This is Ken Ham, an Aussie transplant with a passion for sharing the truth of God's Word. When looking at our reading about ancient artifacts and documents from the Bible times, watch for both similarities and differences. You might recognize names, places, or even events from the Bible. Some of the myths, like flood or creation myths, may sound even familiar because the true account of what happened is recorded in the Bible. But note the differences. The Bible doesn't portray events as if they're myths. It uses historical narrative. Unlike other ancient sources, the Bible presents one true God, the Creator. In the Bible, God is the source of Power. In other documents, the gods are controlled by magic. The Bible is distinctly different because its author is God.
6: Sign up for daily insights from Ken Ham, delivered to your inbox when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Listen to this program again or view a full transcript at AnswersRadio.com.
3: I have a Bible that I read I know the truth and I believe I go to church with my friends
5: archaeology this is Ken Ham on a mission to strengthen the global church with God's word archaeological discoveries from Bible times can help us as we study God's word today but we must remember that his word stands as an authority over them here are two uses for ancient artifacts and texts one they can provide unknown details archaeology gives valuable information about the culture religions and more of Israel and the surrounding lands This can enhance our understanding of the biblical text. We don't need this information because the scripture is clear, but it can enhance a passage. Second, for helping us defend the Bible's historicity. Many archaeological discoveries have confirmed what we read in the Bible. We can use these to defend its truth and authority.
6: Listen to this faith-building program again and find examples of how archaeology confirms the Bible when you visit our website at answersradio.com. That's AnswersRadio.com. dot com.
0: That's it for Truth Be Radio. I'll we'll go out with Yanti and friends with the really Bye for now.
3: The B I